Today and next week, we look at underground nuclear tests. This subject was requested by one of my patrons, Tom Allen, and this is one of the benefits of being a podcast patron. You get to request episode topics. Well, Tom, I am so glad you did, as I was feeling a bit underwhelmed, a bit lazy, I suppose, after the festive period, finding it hard to get back into the swing of things. So I was happy to be... Well, it, it was like being given homework. It was being given a direction. Tom sent me a message through Patreon requesting this topic, and so I rolled my sleeves up and got on with it. And I'm so glad I did, as it's turned out to be far more interesting than I suspected. As you know, my research tends to be about people, about the social history of the bomb, about preparing for nuclear war. I'd like to know how the bomb affected people. I can't say I'm too bothered about how the bomb affected soil and rock and the atmosphere. But, to my surprise, this topic has been bloody interesting. If you follow me on Twitter, you'll see that on Sunday night I was tweeting about ice cream scoops and retarks. That's right, retarks. Never heard of them until now, until I researched this episode. And now it's all I can talk about. So thank you, Tom, for requesting this episode. Remember, if you're a patron at the Tsar Bomba level or above, one of your nuclear rewards is that you can request a topic. So make use of it. Just email me or get me on social media or contact me through the Patreon site. I'm always happy to hear from you. And if you want to become a patron and support the podcast in exchange for various nuclear rewards, please go to patreon.com forward slash atomic hobo. And now let's get into these underground nuclear tests. Nuclear tests were forced to go underground in the 1960s. The public had become increasingly aware of the horrible threat of fallout, and so pressure grew to stop atmospheric tests, tests which are above ground. It was better to hide them away underground. There they would be less visible but also less likely to throw fallout up into the atmosphere. The final straw was probably the Lucky Dragon incident in 1954. The Lucky Dragon was a Japanese fishing boat out in the Pacific hunting for tuna. The fishermen saw a massive white cloud billow on the horizon. Soon it seemed to move towards them. 
things didn't seem right, so the men gathered their nets and decided to sail for shore. But the cloud drew nearer, and soon a fine white ash began to fall on the boat. It pitter-pattered lightly all around them. One man tasted the ash and said it was crunchy. It also had a slightly peppery taste, leaving a sting on the tongue and on the skin. The men soon found they were sore and burned where this strange white ash had touched them. By the time the fishermen reached shore, many of them were sick. Yes, that huge white cloud was the mushroom cloud from the American Castle Bravo hydrogen bomb test. One which notoriously outstripped the scientists' predictions. They had said it would be a six megaton yield. It was 15 megatons. The huge and unexpected yield meant that fallout stretched far beyond the exclusion zone, poisoning the lucky dragon and its men. In 1963, the Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty came into force, and this forbade all nuclear tests, unless they were underground. So what exactly is an underground test? Well, it is quite literally a nuclear test where instead of having the bomb on the ground or on top of a tower, you dig deep and you plant the thing beneath the earth. An underground test will usually leave a crater on the surface of the earth. So even though the thing is tucked safely underground, there is still quite a lot to be seen above ground. Often, yes, there will be a crater. We've all seen them in pictures of the Nevada test site. They look like huge big pockmarks on the surface. It looks like a giant has reached down to take an ice cream scoop out of the earth. So what is the process which creates that gigantic crater? Well, in an underground test, your bomb is, of course, buried underground. If a bomb explodes above ground, but is still relatively close to the surface of the Earth, it will leave a very shallow crater. And that's because it will have vaporised some of the surface soil. Okay, fine, we understand that. If the bomb is actually touching the earth, it will leave a slightly deeper impression because it's not only vaporising some of the surface soil, but it is compacting the soil too. Some of the pressure from the blast is pressing down and is compacting the soil. If we try to zoom in on soil, we realise it's just a clump of grains of earth, isn't it? In this scenario, they're all being pushed, mashed, compressed together by the pressure of the bomb. Picture giant hands. Hands belonging to the same giant, perhaps, who was previously using the, an ice cream scoop on the earth. Well, these giant hands are pressing down, down on the soil. So you get a slightly deeper dent in the earth with a ground burst, with a little pinch of vaporising and a dash of compacting. So these two types of explosions leave 
shallow indentations or depressions, one which is exploding on the ground or slightly above the ground. But they leave shallow indentations. So what creates those big whopping craters in the earth, those big ice cream scoops? They are the ones associated with underground tests. So how do they come about? Well, you take your bomb and you bury it good. You detonate the bomb underground. A big crater results. How? Well, it's down to two separate effects. One is that there is soil or earth packed in above the bomb. Well, of course there is. It's buried, isn't it? Some of the Nevada bombs went as deep as 500 feet under the earth. So there's maybe hundreds of feet of soil packed above the bomb. And this exerts what's known as a confining effect. It means the energy thrown off by the bomb when it detonates underground can't just go wherever it wants. In their previous episode, Priscilla and the Pigs, and I believe this is the one which made Tom wonder about underground tests, I had said one of the benefits of the Nevada test site um, where the Priscilla bomb had detonated was that much of the land was flat and empty and that meant the bomb's blast wave could run out unimpeded and scientists could, of course, scoop up all the data they wanted because there was nothing in the way of the bomb. They could see its full power. But when the bomb is underground, well, we have the opposite scenario, don't we? Instead of being able to run off and do as it likes, it is instead constrained by the masses of earth packed around it. So the energy thrown off by the bomb on detonation can't just go gallivanting wherever it likes. It's confined by the density of the soil above and around it. This confining effect means that a lot of the bomb's energy is forced down, even further down underground. And when that energy is pushed down, it compacts the soil beneath it. Remember we heard about compacting the soil earlier, which is when we have the big giant hands pushing down on the soil? Well, here we have the same effect. It's simply happening below ground. A lot of the bomb's power and energy is being forced downwards into the earth. We also have a second effect going on. We know the soil is confining the bomb, forcing lots of the energy down, but it can't confine all of it. This is a nuke, after all. So, some of its energy, yep, does manage to escape upwards. And as it does, it throws the soil up, up, and away. (laughs) If you look at videos of underground tests on YouTube, you will often see this happen. If we're viewing the underground tests from, say, up in a helicopter or up in a tower, we often see a soft ripple move across the land, And then you see the pressure erupt from the earth and it blows the soil up with it. There's no mushroom cloud, there's no huge explosion. What we see instead from above, it looks like a smoky fountain bursting up from the ground. This is the soil and earth being forced up and out by the bomb. Most of this thrown soil will land some distance away. It's light, it's just earth. So it can be hurled nicely and easily through the air. 
So if most of the confining soil is thrown up, up and away, then we have a vacancy, don't we? We've lost most of the soil. And we also have a whopping big cavity down, down in the earth where the bomb once sat. And so the land sinks inwards. And we have our crater. If you bury your bomb even deeper, then the confining effect of the soil above it is obviously greater, as is the amount of soil it can eventually manage to toss up into the air. But if the bomb is trying to toss loads of soil, then the load is, of course, heavier. And so, naturally, the force of the bomb won't manage to toss it quite as far. So instead of throwing the soil up, up and away, it will throw it upwards a short way, a pathetic way, and it will then collapse straight back down because more weight means less velocity and so less throwing power. If there's a lot of soil to be shifted, then most of it will simply fall straight back down into the crater. This returning soil is known as fallback and it's very useful in keeping surrounding populated areas safe uh, or relatively safe, safer, from fallout because fallback helps restrict it. Think of the fallback, all that returning soil, as a plug. And as it falls back down, it'll plug the crater nicely with soil, keeping any sneaky radioactive material from the bomb safely underground. Of course, it was really as simple as that, and radioactive material did still escape in the underground testing age, but we'll look more about that next week. So, as might have been predicted, the deeper the bomb, the safer the test. A deeper bomb creates fallback, which helps restrict fallout. Taking this idea further, if you bury your bomb deep enough, then very little will be visible on the surface at all. You might get a ripple in the earth, a shudder, but no uh, exploding fountain of soil. Now, here's an interesting thing. So far, we've been talking all about soil, good old soil, that can be tossed and thrown and it can sink straight back down into the crater. Nice, pliable, predictable soil. But if you go deep enough into the earth, if you want to bury your bomb really deep, you'll eventually start hitting rock. So what happens when the bomb is buried beneath solid rock? Soil can get tossed up and away. It can be thrown up into a curve because it's light. And we know that as the amount of soil gets heavier, the nice curving, the nice up and over is lessened. Because when the bomb is trying to throw a heavy load of soil, it will go up and right back down. Weight does that. Imagine tossing a feather directly up into the air. It'll probably dart and whiz and flip all over the place. Then toss a brick then down. Weight takes away all the fun. Having eaten too much over Christmas, I can tell you that for now. So imagine then that the bomb buried deep isn't tossing soil up into the air, but a far heavier substance. Rock. The bomb will shatter any rock which is immediately surrounding it, and it will toss any broken rock up to the surface. Of course, this all depends on the type of rock, but I'm not a geologist, so let's just talk in general terms here. It will toss up cracked and broken rock. 
Now, the broken rock in this jagged, messed up state will occupy more volume up there than it would have done in its former nice, neat, compact state. So, unlike the soil, the fallback, it can't just fall back nicely. It won't fit now. It's now a broken and untidy wreck of rock. It won't just slot back in. This isn't Tetris. And so it lies there, up on the surface, in a messy heap. It has created a mound of rubble. So it's become the opposite of a crater. And the name given to this is a retark, which is crater spelled backwards. The opposite of a crater. Crater retark. <laughs> How cool is that? The first nuclear retark was the Sulky test from 1964. He was detonated in granite, which was overlaid with basalt. This was chosen deliberately so the scientists could test the effects of a nuclear detonation in hard, dry rock. And they were all quite surprised to find not a crater, but its opposite, a retark. According to nuclearweaponarchive.org, granite is good for producing retarks as it is a strong rock which, quote, tends to fracture in large blocks for maximum bulking effect. The sulky retark was 24 metres high and 6 metres wide and was the only retark in American nuclear testing history. Maybe that's why he was so sulky. So who knew rocks and dirt could be so interesting? Next week we'll look at some of the more notable or juicy underground tests, ask whether they were more effective than atmospheric tests, and we'll look at the partial test ban treaty of the 60s and what it meant for Cold War relations between East and West. Thank you again to Tom Allen for suggesting the topic. Remember that's just one benefit of being an Atomic Hobo patron, so please consider supporting my podcast and the writing of my nuclear book with a donation each month. Take a look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. I have two new patrons who've joined this week, so hello and a big thank you to Ashlyn and to Benjamin Rostens. And let me give a quick thank you to the following patrons. Chris Carini, Christopher Creva, Dave Cardena, David Daly, David Glaves, Debbie, Declan Crowell, Eamon Coyle, Emma Nystrom, Everybody, Gary Watson, Geert Kingma, Gordon McNair, Henry T. Drummond, Ian McCulloch and Jacqueline Brick. Thank you everyone for listening and I'll be back next Monday with more underground nuclear testing.